Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a brand new episode again of One Vision. Now, the three of us are back together, Arun, Bradley, and myself, but we're going to do something fun today. We are going to turn the table around and put Mr. Arun Kumar Krishna Kumar on the hot seat because guess what? We have announced as a brand new author. But before we get to that, Let's talk about your background, Arun, because I don't think we actually ever had any chance to talk about you and you and only you. So we want to know about your formative years, those are Bradley's words, and how you came to be in the VC world, how you came to be the person, the hero without a cape and trying to change the world, and how you come to being addicted to writing. Uh, I'm not able to stop chuckling uh, hearing you say my name like that, but uh, thanks for that introduction, uh, Theo. So um, just uh, going back a few years, um, I, I'm originally from a village in, uh, in South India. Uh, been out of the village for the last 23 years. It's a beautiful neighborhood surrounded by the Western Guards mountain ranges with waterfalls visible from my roof, I mean, my terrace. Um, amazing village, which is probably why I, I feel so passionate about the planet and the environment. But I've moved out of the village for, I mean, uh, been out of the village for the last 23 years, and uh, I still feel like the villagers, so uh, pretty much intact there. Moved to cities after that, Chennai, uh, Mumbai, Bangalore, and now for the last 15 years I've been in London. Largely been a financial services data and tech person. So if you ask for what my focus areas were for the last 15 odd years, it's been that space, corporate careers spanning across primarily Barclays Capital and uh, PwC. Um, did a couple of business degrees in, um, um, uh, in, in the UK. Originally an engineer, but, uh, uh, but, but in the UK I did one degree from London School of Economics and one from Side Business School, um, University of Oxford. Um, in 2012, I think that's when I really started to do a little bit of soul searching. I was, I was leading a, a build out of a platform within um, Barclays Capital, managing a huge, uh, a huge team um, across the globe, and, and and it was pretty good. But I was feeling a sense of uh, dissatisfaction with the, with my job, because one thing I realized was. Um, it felt like uh, corporate tech was more about empire building, self-preservation through all those nasty politics and uh, very little value creation. So I said, okay, I don't, I don't want to, I didn't want to do that uh, any longer. But I didn't know what, what, what I wanted to do, to be honest, at that point. So there was a bit of soul searching I had to do. What I did was I cold messaged about hundred people um, across uh, LinkedIn. Um, and even within Barclays Capital, I just sent cold emails to people and said, hey, I didn't know, I don't know you, uh, but I'm here, I'm doing this, but I would like to understand what your day job looks like. I, I spoke to uh, bankers, traders, risk managers, VCs, uh, private equity folks, and even professors in that academy. So I just want to understand where I wanted to go based on what they told me about their day job and getting a good feel for uh, what, what interests me. For a period of a year of doing this, I, I mean, kind of got a sense of where I wanted to be. I really wanted to be in the deal-making space where transactions happen. Um, and due to my tech background, I knew that I had to be in the VC space. Um, I didn't want to move away from tech. I quite love tech. Um, and that's really how I figured out 
that I wanted to move towards the venture capital space. And I started working towards it diligently after that. Over the last five years, it's been um, probably the most hard working period of my life, uh, even more than when I was at school or uni. uni. I've worked quite hard over the last five years or so. Um, lots of disappointments, successes. It's been a roller coaster few years. Uh, but today I'm pleased to say we have, I now have been part of 19 investments, led a dozen of them as uh, board on the board of about four of them. Um, I'm also on the um, on a managing trustee to an NGO in India. I've written 150 blogs close to that for daily fintech. Um, and of course, we are doing this podcast together and it's now kind of going quite strong. Thanks to you and Brad. Um, and thankfully, I've got the book as well now. So very pleased. I'm grateful uh, to myself and all those wonderful souls who have helped me to get here. Um, and of course, I'm feeling quite blessed, honestly. So that's that's largely me. Um, so Aruna Kumar, um, or Arun as we know him, <laughs> let's, let's take you know a little bit of a journey then. You, this book has been written over the past year plus, <clears throat> and um, the title of it is Quantum Computing and Blockchain in Business, Exploring the Applications, Challenges, and Collision of Quantum Computing and Blockchain. So let's start there. Um, tell us about the book and describe the technologies and the collision that you're talking about, because uh, it's fascinating. Everybody should get this book to understand how the future is kind of being written by this technology. So, Rude, let's 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 start there. Uh, great question to start with. So, uh, let's let me just set the stage by saying we live in a data era. Everything, most things we see today is driven by data, and any relevant technology that we look at, we get excited about has something to do with data. Um, blockchain and quantum computing, when I first kind of started researching for the book, um, I, I knew that they had a overlap, fundamental overlap over cryptography. So when I planned the thesis for this book, I knew I had to touch upon the overlaps, uh, overlaps of these two um, big technologies. Um, and But also when I say the overlaps, I have to touch upon the technology overlaps, which is a cryptography which is where there is a collision um, course, uh, but also touch about the, uh, talk about the applications, uh, the, the so what's of the technology. So the, the, the more I researched, I realized that there was a, a, a point of collision because blockchains that we see today, most of them um, use the RSA uh, cryptography or elliptic or, uh, curve cryptography. Um, in simple terms, when there is a transaction on a blockchain, the keys, the public and the private keys that, that are used um, for authenticating the transaction. Thus, these keys are encrypted or generated using um, these algorithms. Now, in a post-quantum era, both RSA and um, ECC, as we call it, are uh, vulnerable uh, because quantum computers can crack these keys. Um, it's like you already have the keys. It's that simple, um, which means these blockchains are no longer safe. But what are we doing today? We are storing quite a lot of value. It's not just data, it's value in these blockchains. So I'm not, I'm not here to scare everybody saying that this is gonna to happen tomorrow. So we have to, we have to make sure people understand uh, the course we are on at the moment. We have a good part of a decade to resolve this. And in the book, I have discussed ways it can be done. 
but this is critical that we address uh, it's critical that we address this this point of correlation the other aspect what i have highlighted in the book is um, are the applications of these technologies across several industries um, one thing i have found through uh, all the interviews the conversations and my research is that these two technologies can happily coexist once we have resolved the points of collision so let's let's go in that a little bit more um talk about the history and and the weirdness i think that's how you describe it of quantum mechanics and quantum computing i feel like i'm talking to a phd scientist in here um that the little person with the little notes and trying to say so professor arun tell us um so how how does quantum computing relate to some of the recent efforts to develop with blockchain crypto and distributed ledger technology what are some of those examples of how they are being used today and, and what do you think that might go right so one thing i have to say here and for the benefit of the audience is uh, for anyone to really say i am a quantum expert uh, this is something i heard at the start of my research is you've got to have a phd in maths you have to have a phd in physics and a phd in computer science to completely understand quantum computing so i am not going to claim that i am a quantum scientist what can we call you a quantum influencer oh my god <laughs> too early for that maybe we'll get there but what i think i've i've managed to get over a period of um looking at 2000 companies in the last 5 odd years uh is the so what's of any technology that's put in front of me so you throw a technology at me i can tell you which what the business context uh could be for that particular technology what's the best business context could be now quantum mechanics has been around for almost a century um it's the 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 principles of the the, uh, the technology the quantum computing that that uh, uh the principles that quantum computing um um relies on or or was built on has been around for quite some time i discussed this at um at length in in my book but the the key takeaway is that even the sharpest minds that we know for instance einstein um he didn't quite agree with the principles behind some of the quantum technology paradigms like quantum communication um the uh, the quantum communication experiments that's happening across the world today they are relying on a particular uh, quantum property called entanglement so now when i say entanglement it's like uh, it this is where the weirdness comes in two subatomic particles and they are entangled you can quite literally change the state of one of them and and you can see the state of the other change even if the two particles are several miles apart now this is this is typically instantaneous so you you set the polar, polarization of one particle here um, and if that changes immediately you are really transmitting information there and this is what makes it weird and made it weird for einstein einstein because he called it spooky action to distance and he couldn't convince himself that the state of one particle could be transmitted to another instantly or could affect um the, the state of another instant instantaneously probably faster than the speed of light which challenges his theory of relativity so this is this is why it's weird and this is just one aspect of quantum computing that 
that weirdness comes from. There are multiple areas which I have discussed in the book. And for me, um, uh, for me, uh, the scientific weirdness is is definitely worth exploring and exploiting as well. Uh, but there are several spiritual and philosophical questions that seem to have answers within quantum mechanics. I was I was part of a mindfulness uh, conversation recently, and uh, from spirituality, they were referring to uh, quantum entanglement. Um, it's this, the, for instance, why do twins have that sense of attachment and intuition? Why do you feel it when someone you love is perhaps looking for your support um, thousands of miles away? Um, I would describe that as an entanglement at a different level altogether. The book doesn't talk about all these, but that is some of the takeaways for me in the process of writing the book. From a scientific perspective, though, um, for instance, China has created a satellite experiment where um, the satellite is called uh, Mishius. Uh, they have transmitted um, information using quantum communication, the instant transmission across entangled particles through a satellite uh, be between two Earth uh, stations that were thousands of miles apart. So that's been proven. It's it's not something uh, that's just theoretical. So these things are weird, and and I have I've just explained one of them. Um, there are quite a lot of other um, uh, other aspects uh, that we have discussed. I have discussed in the book, uh, which I feel adds to the weirdness of this uh, this technology. I like about the way that you sort of structure the book is that you've got you know an explainer uh, on each topic, and then you kind of go into you know in depth what examples are kind of currently being established across many many industries, and then you dive into where things may go. And so again, just want to reinforce the fact that this is probably the first time I've actually dove into a book of this kind. Uh, across a topic that, you know, in financial services, especially we've been living for the last three or four years. And so I, let's let's kind of go in that direction. Um, you talk a lot about sort of the impact of these technologies. Um, and I want to talk about how you view them within the context of financial services. And so what did you find sort of most striking in your research? And where have initial developments um, within the space as it relates to banking? Altered and uh, which which ones have the most promise? Sure, um, most of the applications I've explored in the book are uh, rather problems that we we face um, across industries on a day to day basis. Um, so let me just touch upon why quantum computers can be more powerful before going into the applications, um, um, if if I may. So when you compare quantum computers to um, classical computers. In a classical computer, we have something called, we have bits, and the bits have two states, zero and one. In a quantum computer, the quantum bits, um, otherwise called qubits, um, can stay in both these states at the same time. And this principle is, or this property of quantum, um, uh, quantum mechanics is called superposition. Um, as a result of this, uh, there's the, co the computational ability in a quantum computer uh, is exponentially higher than in a classical computer. Therefore, in a business context, where classical computers struggle to compute, um, and uh, uh, and we sometimes have to make um, adjustments to uh, classical computers, and even the, the algorithms that we feed into classical computers to address these limitations, we don't necessarily have to do that in a quantum computer. 
So let me take a financial services example. I've touched upon um, portfolio rebalancing. So when, when we look at asset managers, they do go through this process of portfolio rebalancing where you have a bunch of assets across asset classes, um, equities, debt, uh, cash, commodities, and so on and so forth. So depending on the market and investors' appetite, asset managers perform an exercise called portfolio balancing, which is typically a three-month exercise because it takes that long to figure out what they're going to do. They may choose to, for instance, they may choose, choose to increase commodities allocation and reduce stock allocation. Let's take that as an example. And let's say that they're going long on uh, commodities, say oil, and short on airlines, airline stock. Now, there is a problem there because oil prices and airlines um, stock prices are highly correlated. Therefore, if they're going to uh, change the allocation between these two, there needs to be uh, a correlation needs to be factored in. Now, if you take a portfolio of 30 different assets, and you need to be able to understand the effect of the correlation of one, one rebalancing one of or a couple of them against the remaining 28 or 29. Until you have to recalculate the correlations across the portfolio to get a balanced portfolio, newly balanced portfolio with the new set of allocations. And this is a very time consuming, computationally complex task. And there are certain shortcuts like uh, uh, principal component analysis and all that, that, that uh, that are used today to cut, cut through the or, or reduce the correlation impact so that it's easier for uh, classical computers to perform today. But what uh, quantum technologies offer us is to deal with those uh, correlations much more um, seamlessly so that these calculations can happen um, almost instantaneously. So for instance, Fujitsu's quantum-inspired digital analysis and I have to repeat, it's quantum inspired, not quantum computing. Um, or qu uh, they're not quantum machinery yet. Uh, they're quantum inspired digital annealers that are already live. They are in production and are able to do portfolio rebalancing in under a second. And uh, in, in all practice, you can't do portfolio rebalancing every second because there are transaction costs related to that. And it's not feasible for, uh, for it's not a feasible exercise. Uh, but when you look at a market crash like we've been seeing in the last few weeks, you will have to have the capability to reallocate your portfolio um, or assets, um, or sorry, rather um, change the allocation of um, your assets within your portfolio, um, if not instantly within within uh, within the span of a day or through through the day, and that is what this the potential of this technology could be. Now, um, going back to a little bit on blockchain again, um, I have touched upon every time I have touched upon quantum. In most cases, I've touched upon blockchain as well. So I don't want to, um, of course, there's, there's quite a lot of excitement uh, around quantum and blockchain is perhaps going through a little bit of a winter at the moment. But I think there is still quite a lot of potential there. Um, and uh, from an application perspective, I think trade finance, supply chain finance is perhaps closest to my heart, um, especially in the agricultural sector. Um, I'm on the board of AgriLedger, as, as you probably know, um, and we are working in Haiti with the World Bank um, and the Haiti government to provide uh, a tracking tool for farmers and through the full food value chain. Again, the, 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 just imagine the power that the data could give you when you see farmers transacting and at every stop, uh, the food is being tracked. And 
and the moment the transaction history is created for a farmer, that could bring financial inclusion like never before. And that's perhaps the biggest application that I could see for that particular technology. I mean, that probably for me is, is the biggest application. I'm so passionate for it. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Let's dive into that a little bit more because on the quantum side in the book, you go through market risk, credit risk, digital annealing, which uh, I, I think everybody should kind of go through that chapter. And then you talk about um, portfolio selection, like you just kind of gave an example of. On the banking side and on sort of the everyday uh, consumer side, it's it's one thing to think about, you know, where the goods that you are shopping for or that you're having in your field are sort of coming from the source of it to make sure that there's authenticity and keeping that along the supply chain. Um, but there's other areas that I think are, are just as impactful that you talk about in the book. And, you know, it's it's everything like what I used to do at Santander. We looked at a lot of AML and KYC solutions. We looked at trade finance and a lot of startups in that space. But you've got a couple other things in here about digital currencies and security tokens and especially things like remittance. Tell me about, you know, other ways that this technology is going to impact people positively, whether from financial inclusion or just making things more efficient and cheaper and faster for sort of the average uh, consumer. Uh, absolutely. Uh, if, you, if you're looking at um, blockchain, the traceability aspect, the handshake aspect, perhaps, the immutable handshake aspect is what kind of impresses me the most at this point. Of course, we have uh, uh, cryptos and all that that's caused excitement. And again, that's died down a little bit um, since then. But personally, for me, the smart contracts mechanism, the handshake mechanism that uh, that we have, uh, the capability that brings that it brings to the table is perhaps uh, that excites me the most. For instance, I have again touched this uh, briefly in one of the chapters: crop insurance. So, crop insurance. Um, let me tell you a little story. Uh, about two years ago, there was a storm in my state in India, Tamil Nadu where uh, typically the storm uh, hits the coastal areas and they are generally very, very well prepared for it. But this time the storm went inland and uh, or the cyclone cyclone went inland, hurt farmers. And the farmers that it, it, it hit the most were doing coconut farming. The farmers had moved from rice farming to coconut farming because rice was water intensive. But the challenge with coconut farming is that unlike rice, which is harvested uh, through a season, uh, coconut takes years. Coconut farms take years to uh, create. And because coconut farms were destroyed, several years of hard work was destroyed. And some of them were even parents of my university friends who were farmers. And I, so I could relate to it. It was pretty close. Um, and um, and when I asked them, did you did you have any, uh, any idea about insurance? They, even my friends didn't have a clue. Uh, forget their parents. Even my friends who are engineers didn't have a clue, right? So I was like, there should be a solution. It's not about government offering subsidies to these farmers. These subsidies could be offered as 
insurance premiums. Now we have financial inclusion across India, thanks to Aadhaar, there's an identity system. Most farmers have a bank account. All the subsidy system could do is just put in 10 rupees or 15 rupees per month uh, from, the, uh, from the farmer's account into an insurance policy that could be subsidized or channelized from the government. And this could sit on smart contracts. We have information about um, uh, soil humidity, weather patterns, all that digitally available. You could create a blockchain system that automatically triggers claims when you see that either rainfall has failed or it's overdone itself, farmers have lost the crop. And you do a pricing based on the pricing of that particular crop for the year and just send that money out to them. Of course, you can't really give back them, give back the 10 years of hard work or compensate for that, but it is their livelihoods. So that is one, one, one example I've touched upon. I think there are several such impactful examples around healthcare, um, especially, in, again, going back to India and Africa, uh, the pharmaceutical industry is quite um, filled with um, fake drugs, and that's a big problem. And uh, despite the fact that India produces 25% of um, uh, malarial drugs that's being distributed to the U.S. now, uh, just be careful, guys. It's it's not 100% going to be 100% uh, going to be uh, uh, genuine. So there are quite a lot of fake drugs going through the supply chain, and blockchain could help clean that up. And there are several projects happening across the world there. So these are all things that 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 could have massive implications. Again, coming back to the food ecosystem, I have to go back because that's where my heart is. 33% um, of food is wasted on the food supply chain, just goes waste. We have 8 billion people in the world and the amount of stress that puts on the agricultural ecosystem, the food, food supply chain is enormous. And to waste 33% of the food that's being produced is just not right. To fix that, we need technology such as blockchain. Don't get me started on food waste. Um, I, I think in the last week or so, stories have emerged in the United States. Um, and I wonder if it's the same story elsewhere as well, where because of the fact that restaurants are shut down, so imagine the crops and the milk and, and the dairy and all of those products, half of them that have been channeling to restaurants to supply meals, because of the fact that those that route has been shut down, now the farmers are left with rotten um, crops. They're left with excess milk that they can't store. And that's where that all has been going. It's been dumped. They've been dumping gallons and gallons and gallons of milk out. Even at the same time, we have millions of people that are starving in the United States. They have been letting some of the crops die. They're talking about killing some of those animals because they're not needed anymore. At the same time, when food banks are asking for help, when people are lining up across the streets in LA yesterday, over a mile long, waiting for food. It's incredible what we, as one of the richest nations in the world, cannot do. And I don't know if that's a technology problem or that's just purely a human issue. I have no idea. I, I just couldn't comprehend it. Um, and we can spend a whole episode talking about crop insurance and, and all of that too. 
um, in, in the process of one of the projects that Brad and I have been working on, we've been looking um, into, you know, what, what crop insurance can do um, for a lot of the developing economies. And your point is right on. It's about using technology to help um, those farmers, right, that otherwise didn't have to mean to recover from natural disasters, which seems to be more and more um, so the case with climate change and all that. So back to all of that, is there anything that a blockchain powered by quantum computing cannot do? It seems like it can do a lot of stuff. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> first things we need to understand is both these technologies have been hyped up enough. Um, and uh, we need to be realistic about the timelines and the possibilities that we are discussing here. A quantum computer for mainstream adoption is at least a decade away. There are quite a lot of uh, challenges um, around or technology limitations around quantum computing, uh, quantum computers that have to be overcome. For instance, uh, stability problems, um, challenges with error handling. Uh, to overcome all that, we need to first figure out a way where we can store information in a qubit for long periods of time um, and uh, at room temperature. So when we have that, then we can probably talk about um, more sophisticated applications of quantum computers. Um, but once that happens, we are really talking some serious possibilities. For instance, you think about drug discovery for, uh, for Alzheimer's. Um, I'm, I'm discussing this at length in the, in the book. Again, cancer treatment. Uh, the challenges with today's cancer treatment is you are not able to see what the interplay between cancer cells and the existing uh, healthy cells are. And when you're trying to kill uh, the cancer cells through chemotherapy, how much of healthy cells are getting affected and how that affects cancer cells further. And, and the interplay is very hard to model. If you're able to get that very accurately modeled using uh, complicated or rather sophisticated, not complicated, sophisticated um, uh, computing capability, that's going to take us a long way. Uh, flight path modeling again. So uh, one of Airbus is involved in lots of um, research around um, flight dynamics or aerodynamics around flights. If you know how your flight wings are going to interact with the air molecules around it, and um, and you're able to structure your flight or or manufacture your flight, design your flight in a way that the takeoffs and landings are much more. Um, efficient uh, aerodynamically, you're going to save a lot of jet fuel. Um, again, that's another another use case. Quite a lot of these. Um, election modeling is something really interesting. Um, and we have uh, something which is, again, close to my heart, is nitrogen fixation. So nitrogen fixation happens very naturally in, in, in nature. Um, and when we created a process to, uh, to replicate nitrogen fixation in the industrial environment, we've created a process which takes 3% of um, global energy and uh, contributes to about 2% of uh, carbon carbon emissions. So why can't we do something as sustainably or uh, efficiently uh, as nature? Because we haven't been have, we haven't had the opportunity to model in a computer uh, what nature does. So when you when quantum computers become mainstream, we will be looking at all those whole new possibilities which haven't been possible in the past. Um, I mean, uh, if you want to do that in a classical computers, um, this, is, this is a very good example for, in, in a very crude and simplistic terms. If you're, if you're a quantum scientist, please shut your ears for a, for a second. Uh, 
when you when you in a, in a quantum sorry in a classical computer when you want to model physics when i say physics it could be movements of planets or molecular interaction or whatever when you want to model physics in classical computers what you need to do is you need to translate the physics or or or, or understand the physics and and translate that into maths and the maths uh, maths is then fed into a computer in computer language so there are multiple hops of translations that happens when that happens you invariably invariably lose precious information so what results in a computer is not a exact replica of what's actually happening in nature this is the case with classical computers but with quantum computers you are able to model stuff as close to nature as possible with very little translation so the loss of data loss of information is very minimal so the even the results are a lot more qualitatively a lot more accurate um, and and which is why some of uh, uh, some of the use cases around chemistry healthcare um, again nitrogen fixation um, drug discovery are, are just the possibilities are mind blowing So again, the book is Quantum Computing and Blockchain in Business. And what I really like about um, the way that you've put it together is that you're taking a very complex process and a complex technology, and you're adding a human element to it. Um, what's interesting about the book is that right before the end, right before you get to a conclusion, you talk about the darker side of these technologies, ones that could threaten nation states. Or launch a new cyber arms race. Talk about the dangers of these technologies and how they could impact everyday life if we don't manage them well. Sure, that's a great question, Brad. Um, this is something that um, that kind of shook me up while I wrote it. Wrote it because the more I researched, the more I started looking at the dark side of technology. Um, see, going back to cryptography um, in a post-quantum era, it's not just blockchains. The internet is unsafe as well. Every most most applications that we use in the internet, bank accounts, email IDs, login password for most of your accounts will be at risk because they are all using RSA's or ECC cryptography. Um, the only reason we all seem to believe we haven't been breached so far by a quantum computer is because there is no news out there about a full-blown quantum computer. The tech is still work in progress. The day someone achieves the fiat of creating a quantum computer that can do that, <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really crazy. Uh, because uh, I know that there's quite a lot of um, experiments uh, that are happening between several quantum computing companies and American Defense, for example. Because they are uh, they're worried that um, China, for instance, are taking a lead with this. They have they have deployed I think four or five billion dollars or um, dollar equivalent to into this technology to and which is why they are clearly ahead from a quantum communication and some of the some of the uh, quantum technologies China are quite ahead of the rest of the world um, India uh, Canada UK and um, and uh, the US are far far behind China when it comes to this the research is there the the knowledge is there. But uh, from a practical breakthrough perspective, China is kind of leading the way there. So there's quite a lot of investment happening. But I wouldn't say that there is any need to panic because thankfully so far we haven't seen any any news about major breakthroughs in quantum computing. 
um, from some of these nation states. What uh, what is being done is uh, there is an organization called um, NIST in the U.S. National Institute of uh, um, Standards and Technology. They're working on initiatives uh, to save all our data on the internet, where, which basically identifying crypto uh, cryptographic techniques that can be quantum proof. I've talked spoken about it at length, um, and then that is that is an initiative that's happening uh, from an organization perspective. So if you're if you're running businesses uh, which are data heavy. Uh, that is there is a challenge. Um, one of the the interviews with uh, Dinesh, especially, was has been quite an eye opener for me. My, uh, for me as well, I learned a lot from him. Um, and 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 the and the the best thing is there are ways, there are solutions for all these. Uh, and and um, I've discussed all that in the book. So I'll stop at that and leave some suspense for the readers. Um, but um, I think I think uh, I think it's going to be an exciting decade where we. Um, to, we will see some amazing things unravel over the next 10 years is what I think. I think it's going to be a thrill ride for those of you who managed to get your hands on the book, um, Arun's first and probably more to follow. Um, and, and we'll leave you with this, um, Arun, I like one of the quotes that you put towards the end. Life is like a box of chocolates. And you never know what you're going to get. And that's a quote from Forrest Gump. And um, I would say that for our lovely audience and listeners here, um, that describes as much as how we're going through in the world right now, what is going on, as much as what you would feel like after you get done reading Arun's book. So for those of you who are listening and curious, go to uh, Amazon, look for the book, Quantum Computing and Blockchain in Business by our very own Arun. And thank you so much for joining us today. Um, make sure that you post a picture of that from the uh, terrace that you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. We're curious to see what that looks like, what that feels like, since none of us are traveling anywhere anytime soon. Um, at least it'll feel we're there that much closer. And so with that, thank you so much again. And it's always wonderful to have the three of us back together. And we should do this more often next time. For our listeners, thank you for listening in for a brand new episode of One Vision.